We hear some things in church so often, I think, that we stop hearing them after a while, unless we remind ourselves what they mean. What do I mean? Well, it could mean many things. But notice, every Sunday, we pray to the one whom we call Almighty God. Almighty God, we just prayed. To you all hearts are open and from you no secrets are hid. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, in this church, we think it's so important that we say it all over and over. And we say it, Almighty God, not as something that we're afraid of, but instead as something with joy and thanksgiving, something that bears repeating. So my question today for us is, why? Why is it good news that bears repeating that God is almighty, the God of power and might? Well, the story of Moses that we read from today is really a story, I think, about the power of God. We only read part of it, of course. It's quite long, but it's an old, familiar story. Last week, we began with the story of salvation, the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham. The story of Adam and Eve the week before showed us, as our liturgy says, that we as the human race have fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, so that God in His mercy decided not to condemn the world, but to save the world by creating a new people to bear witness to Him. And so, the story goes on, he made a covenant with Abraham, who was nearly a hundred years old. The letter to the Hebrews is perhaps a little insensitive to our silver saints, but it gets this point across. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was so old, he was good as dead. That's what the Bible says. Yet, it goes on from this. From this man came descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the grains of sand on the seashore. That was the point, you see. God was going to reach into the human condition to save us. God, in His power and might, was going to turn things around. There would be no mistaking that it was because of the power and might and youth and strength of Abraham. No. All Abraham did, the scripture says, was believe God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham just trusted God. When God made a covenant with Abraham, as Mother Emily preached about last week, God himself is the one who walked through the bloody passageway in the dark. God would be faithful to his promise of salvation, even when it would mean taking the deadly consequences of sin upon himself. Fast forward to just before the story of Moses. By this point in the story, God's promises had started to come true. 
Emily and I have some friends uh, who recently welcomed their fifth child into the world. They can now field a basketball team. And I told them that whatever else happens to them on Judgment Day, whatever they're worried about, they'll be able to say, See, Lord, you said to be fruitful and multiply, and we have that one covered. Well, apparently the Hebrew children had done their part by this point in the story as well. There were, as the psalm makes clear, lots of them. They were exceedingly fruitful. And when Abraham's great-grandson Joseph made good in the court of Egypt's pharaoh, his eleven brothers went down, as you'll recall, to find food when there was a famine back home. But now, as the story says in the old King James Version, there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. The new pharaoh looked around him and saw that these fruitful Hebrews had multiplied a little too much for his comfort. There were so many of them that they threatened his power. Look, he said, these Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we. That's what the Bible says. And so he did the kind of thing that people in love with power for its own sake do. That is, he did everything he could do to make the people he felt threatened by feel small and weak. The more numerous they grew, the more afraid of them he got. And as our first reading ends, the more ruthless he became. That's the cycle. I think that this story is trying to tell us something about power. Of course, we should remind ourselves that power in and of itself isn't bad. I sometimes hear people say that the worst thing about some bad situation they went through is the feeling that they were powerless to do anything about it. How often it is that we want to do something for someone that we love, but we can't. We feel powerless. How often we want to do something about an injustice that we feel powerless to change. Power in itself is a very good thing as long as it's on the side of what's right, of truth and justice and reconciliation. It goes bad as soon as it's loved for its own sake. We've seen this time and time again, I'm sure, all of us. When we fall in love with power, we'd rather have it in our own hands then see it on the side of what's right. When we fall in love with power, we'll do whatever we can to make others feel small and powerless so that we can feel big and strong. There's a famous dialogue in Plato's Republic about justice and power. If you read it in college, you might remember it. It's when I read it. Socrates and the sophist Thrasymachus are discussing the nature of justice one day. And Thrasymachus says to Plato, excuse me, he says to Socrates, I say, Socrates, that justice is nothing more than the advantage of the stronger. That's his thesis. He means, I think, that justice is just whatever powerful people say it is. It's a cynic's view. Really, he's saying there is no such thing as justice. There's just power all the way down. 
Some people have it, and some people don't. Like I say, it's a cynical view. And of course, if power is all that there is, then the powerless, the weak, the oppressed, the downtrodden, are without hope. The Bible looks out at the human condition and says, power ought to be on the side of justice, but all too often, that just isn't so. But the Exodus story says, even so, Thrasymachus is wrong. There is justice all the same. There is justice for the oppressed because God is justice. And this God is a God of power and might. The Almighty God who is powerful to save. If that's true, it is good news. The Israelites groaned under their slavery, the story says, and cried out. Out of their slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, it's the same in this story as it was with old Abraham, good as dead. The God of power and might just is the God who makes a way where there is no way. The Almighty and Eternal God, the great I Am who spoke out of the burning bush, is the good God who has the power to be faithful to His promises. I am who I am. I will be who I am. I will be who I promised I will be. That's the very name of God. And this is what happens. It plays out in the story of Moses. In the psalm today, we heard the Cliff's Notes version of that story. God delivered the Israelites out of Pharaoh's hand with signs of power and might. The plagues of Egypt, locusts, frogs, all the rest. They weren't just special effects made for a Cecil B. DeMille movie. Instead, they were all designed to challenge the power of Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh was revered in Egypt as a god. He was revered in Egypt as a god who had power over the fertility of the land and the Nile River that watered it. So each of the plagues were a way of saying, no, God's power and might are greater than Pharaoh's. Pharaoh's power can't stand in the way of God's justice. Therefore, Pharaoh, you had better let my people go. The parting of the Red Sea said the same thing. The story says that God led his people on purpose to a cul-de-sac from which there was no escape. There was nothing but the Red Sea in front of them and a perfect place for Pharaoh's army to cut them off behind them. It was a way of saying that they were only going to be saved if they were to be saved by the God who makes a way where there is no way. We read this in Genesis 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. 
This is great good news. God himself passed through the bloody passageway to make a covenant with Abraham. God himself parted the waters and brought the Hebrew children to safety on the other side. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Those are words of great comfort. It's no surprise that the good news of this story has often been understood best by people who find themselves in the shoes of the Hebrew children, oppressed by Pharaoh. Whoever you are, however you got there, when you're in that place and you feel powerless, it's often just then that you really know how much you need the power and might of God. I'll close with a story from Martin Luther King, a great man of faith who knew this well. In 1956, King was a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama, who had helped organize the bus boycott that made Rosa Parks' name. He'd begun getting death threats. At one point, he got about 40 calls a day, if you can believe that, telling him to call off the boycott or he and his family's lives would be in danger. Well, fear began descending on him like a fog. And he began to reach the end of his rope. One night at home, after a long day, he got yet another phone call. It was just a voice saying, Leave town immediately, or you and your family are going to die. King hung up the phone, and with trembling hands, he made himself a pot of coffee and sank down into a chair at his kitchen table. He later wrote of that moment, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the pitcher without appearing like a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I'm afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they'll falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point, God, where I can't face this alone. At that moment, King wrote, I experienced the presence of God as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. A few days later, one of those threats became reality. A bomb went off at his house, and by God's grace, they weren't home, so no one was hurt. Strangely enough, he wrote, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength 
to face it. After the bombing, his neighbors gathered around the ruins of his house and understandably were crying out for justice and vengeance. The king went out on what was left of his porch and said to them, We must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not be stopped because God is on our side. Go home with this glorious faith and radiant assurance. And he sent them out into the world to do the work that God had given them. Blessed with the peace of God that passes all understanding. Because he knew that the God of justice and reconciliation was the God of power and might. God was going to make a way where there was no way. May you and I also go forth in this powerful peace and do the work that God has given us. When you get to a place where you're exhausted, ready to give up, good as dead, when your courage has all but gone, remember God's word to his people. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Remember that the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Amen.